welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on January 14, 2020, Tax Readiness, Understanding the New Opportunity Zone Guidance and How it Applies to Businesses and Investors. The panelists for the webcast were Adam Fierstein, a principal and PwC's National Real Estate Tax Technical Leader, Stephen Kennedy, a partner in PwC's Opportunity Zones practice, Julianne Allen, a principal in PwC's Real Estate Washington National Tax Services, and Sanjeev Magoon, a principal in PwC's Asset Wealth Management Tax Practice. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the background on the Opportunity Zone program. Have a listen. So maybe just some background on the Opportunity Zone program. Julianne, maybe just a little bit of a timeline here, maybe talk a little bit about where we are in, in the process as far as guidance goes and things like that. I, I sort of gave a little hint at the beginning about where we are, but you can, you can sort of give us a little background for those who haven't been following it. Sure. The Opportunity Zone program was part of tax reform, which was in the TCJA, which was enacted on December 22nd, 2017. We received our first round of proposed regulations on October 18th of 2018. There were several several sets of comment letters that were subsequent to the, those proposed regulations, as well as a hearing that was so well attended that it was standing room only. We received a second round of proposed regulations on April 17th, 2019. More comment letters and another hearing that was moved off-site to accommodate more people to, in attendance. We received final regulations at the end of last year on December 18th, 2019. We all got to digest those over the break that we most of us just took. Final regulations were published yesterday, so hot off the presses in the Federal Register, and have an applicability date of March, of March 13th, 2020, which is for tax years beginning after March 13th, 2020. We had a hot discussion earlier today about whether or not it really was March 13th or March 14th, given that this is a leap year this year. <laughs> right, important things. Hopefully there aren't too many people with a, um, a taxable year that begins March 13th and 14th. They may want to really parse through that and figure it out. But for, for most people, probably more of an academic exercise right. than, than anything people have to really worry about. So, and again, just to give a high-level overview for people, and again, by way of background, for the Opportunity Zone program, the basic concepts are that you need to have capital gain. So the first thing is someone has to have capital gain somewhere. And then if they have that capital gain, they can invest it in a qualified opportunity fund. And once they've invested that capital gain in a, in a qualified opportunity fund, they can get certain benefits. And so, Julianne, you want to talk a little bit about what are those benefits that people get when they invest this money? And again, this is just background for people so that they can, they can appreciate maybe the things that are in the final regs. Sure. I like to think of the benefits as being a short-term benefit, a medium-term benefit, and a long-term benefit. The short-term benefit is a temporary deferral of the capital gains that were realized. Um, those capital gains have to be invested in a special purpose vehicle that we call Qualified Opportunity Fund. We'll be talking a lot about that today. The medium-term benefit is a reduction of the capital gains that will eventually be subject to tax. There's a 10% reduction if the investment is held for five years and another 5% reduction of that capital gain if it's seven years. Based on where we are in the program, we are now the reduction is now limited to 10% of invested after December 31st, 2019. We'll talk a little bit more about that soon. And then the long-term benefit is an exemption. The exemption is for any appreciation on that inve initial investment if the investment is held for 10 years. So if an investment is 
invested into a qualified opportunity fund, the capital gains are invested in a qualified opportunity fund. That eligible investment is held for 10 years. Any appreciation on that initial investment is tax-free if that investment's held for 10 years. Got it. So, right, so someone who makes it an eligible investment gets all of the benefits, um, could get up to effectively whatever gain they had on day one, up to 10, in theory, at least in the past, 15% off on their original gain on the asset that they had already sold. And then for whatever they invest in, they could potentially exit from that completely tax-free. Right. Right. Okay. And so that's the basic. And maybe just a, an example may be helpful to walk people through that. Absolutely. Individual A, U.S. taxpayer, realizes a $10 million gain from the sale of stock on December 10th, 2019. I'm sorry, sale of building or sale of stock. Capital gain. She invests $10 million of that cash on April 7th, 2020, in a qualified opportunity fund. That, that's within 180 days. That is within 180 days. Mm -hmm. That's a qualified investment, and she makes a deferral election in her 2019 tax return. Individual A holds her investment in a qualified opportunity fund until June 7th, 2030, when she sells her qualified investment, qualifying investment for $15 million, which is, which is its fair market value. So let's break this up. On December 10th, 2019, she has a capital gain realized of $10 million. On April 7th of 2020, she's going to have her capital gain invested in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. That's $10 million. The basis in her Qualified Opportunity Fund at that point will be zero. She'll have a basis step up on April 7th of 2025 of 10%, which is $1 million. And she got to defer that $10 million of gain, That's so she right. hasn't paid any tax. She has zero basis, but, but no tax paid so far. Right, and no tax paid in April of 2025. On December 31st of 2026, she'll have a, the capital gain recognized, but that capital gain will only be $9 million. That'll be the difference of the $1 million basis step up and the $10 million of the initial gain. That gain will be taxed at the rate in effect in 2026. That was something that was important that was clarified in the final regulations, that the tax rate on the gain is going to be the effective rate at the time the gain is taken into account into income. Her basis in the Qualified Opportunity Fund at that point will be $10 million. When she sells her asset after 10 years, or her investment after 10 years, she's going to elect to increase her basis in the Qualified Opportunity Fund to its fair market value of $15 million. That gain, the difference in appreciation between the $10 million and the $15 million will be zero. Okay. Right, so you can see all of the benefits that people are getting through through that. Now, I know before people were talking about 15% off, you know, we talked about here, you get a step up of only 10%. Why aren't they getting a step up of 15% in, in this example? Well, it works out because of the way the calendar works out. She would have had to hold her investment in the Qualified Opportunity Fund for seven years before December 31st, 2026. She didn't invest in time, she didn't invest by December 31st, 2019, so she won't have, be able to hold her investment for seven years. Right, so people who really are investing now, unless there's a change in law, really 10% is all they can get off on, right. on that original investment um, for, for investments in qualified opportunity funds. That's right. And so, so that shows the benefits, and then again, just from a high level perspective, we have qualified opportunity funds. We've said you have to invest in that. Maybe just to level set a bit, just a high level overview, what is a qualified opportunity fund? We have some pictures here on the chart that maybe people can look at and follow along, but, but maybe just provide some, a little bit of, of color as to what is a qualified opportunity sure. fund. A qualified opportunity fund can be organized in any number of manners. It cannot be a disregarded entity, but it can be a corporation, it can be a partnership, it could be an S corporation, a REIT, or a REC. It must hold 90% of its asset 
assets in qualified opportunity zone property. That test must generally be met biannually, and they, the Qualified Opportunity Fund reports its, its results on its tax return. Got it. And so, and as far as the assets, you said 90% of its assets have to be qualifying assets. So they could be assets it holds directly that are in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. It can also hold, and I think it's reflected on the chart, we have partnerships and corporations that, are, that qualify as Qualified Opportunity Zone businesses. And I think that's an important concept, again, as we talk for people to have in the back of their mind. Qualified Opportunity Fund is effectively the entity at the top that people invest into. The Qualified Opportunity Zone business or Qualified Opportunity Zone partnership or Qualified Opportunity Zone corporation, those are usually references to the entities below the Qualified Opportunity Fund. And there are actually different rules that apply to each of them, oddly enough. And so that, um, important to keep up on that. That's correct. The Qualified Opportunity Fund can hold its Qualified Opportunity Zone business property directly mm -hmm. or through a subsidiary entity like a partnership or a corporation as long as they meet certain requirements, which we'll discuss. Um, and in some regards, um, the Qualified Opportunity Fund may want to hold its assets directly. There are There is one or two little wrinkles, but generally they will want to hold their assets indirectly through a Qualified Opportunity Zone partnership. Right, just because the rules are different and they tend to be more lenient there, although not always. That's correct. Okay. Sanji, we, we mm -hmm. talked about and Julianne mentioned that we just had the regulations were published in the Federal Register yesterday. Maybe talk a little bit about the applicability. To what extent are the items we're talking about today things, are they things that people have to adopt today? Is it, are they, can they rely on the proposed regs for a period of time? Sure. Maybe just touch on that. Sure. So, so as Julianne mentioned, the, the regulations were published yesterday. They're going to be effective 60 days after they're published, so March 13th. You know, assuming leap year, our uh, day counting was correct, and uh, basically that means for taxpayers, uh, they're actually going to apply in, starting in the 2021 taxable year. But taxpayers have the option of applying these to prior tax years as well instead of the proposed regulations, as long as they apply those consistently. And so you can't sort of pick and choose between the regulations. Uh, for most taxpayers, I think the final regulations are a lot more favorable. There were a couple of areas in which the proposed regulations may have been a little more favorable. And that raises an interesting question because there's no grandfathering provided here. So if you had somebody that was relying on the proposed regulations and they structured their investment in a QOF based on those proposed regulations and the, there's a change in the final regulations, then they may have to change the way they, they've done their investment starting with the 2021 tax year. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And it is sort of interesting to think that you have final regulations now, but they don't necessarily apply to you this year. You can elect to not have them apply this year. Yep. Stay under the proposed regs. It's just interesting to, to think about that. So, so moving on to gains, as I mentioned before, as, as part of the high-level overview, you have to have eligible gains in order to, be, to, to benefit from the program. There are lots of questions about what constitutes eligible gains. A whole variety of those were addressed in, in the proposed regulations, but some things were left open. Some things were even made more confusing after the proposed regulations. I think 1231 gains fall in that category. Sanjeev, maybe talk a little bit about 1231 gains and what the, the, what the people were concerned the rules were, and or I guess are under the proposed regs if people stay under those, sure. and then what they are in the final regs. Yes, yeah, so I think this was probably uh, one of the things that maybe like half of the comment letters touched upon, but I think a lot of people were hoping that the definition of eligible gains as they related to 1231 gains would be more favorable. And what the proposed regulation said is, we're just reading section 1231, and section 1231 says that you're gonna have capital gain at the end of the year, so we're gonna net your 
1231 gains against 1231 losses. And if you and, have, and I should probably take a step back there again, just for, for people who, who maybe not know what 1231 gains off, off the top of their head, and I should have noted this at the outset, 1231 gains are basically gains from the sale of business property. So if I sell an investment, generally that's referred to as capital gain. Um, and if I sell an investment that's, that's business property, it's 1231 gain. Generally, it gets taxed at capital gains if you have a gain on it. So it's eligibly invested for opportunity zone purposes. They had concluded that. But then again, some complicated rules that, that went along with that. Yep. And so under the proposed regulations, the way these rules would work is you would have to wait till the end of the year. And you would say, if I had net 1231 gains, meaning my 1231 gains exceeded my 1231 losses for the year, I could elect to invest the net gains into a QOF mm -hmm. and my 180-day period began on the last day of the taxable of the tax year because during the year I had no idea if I was going to actually have net gain or not at the end and what the final regulations do is they you know they basically use a gross approach and they say we're only going to look at your gross 1231 gains and we're not going to care if you have losses and so if you have a gain in April you can invest that gain starting from 180 days in April. And that's sort of a big change because before it was 180 days from the end of the tax year because that's when you determined what the gain was. Now it's gonna be 180 days from when the gain arises. There's exceptions for if you have a gain flowing through from a partnership or an S corporation. But generally, if you recognize the 1231 gain yourself, it's gonna be from the date that you recognize it. Right, so some interesting questions that people will have to think about. Um, with respect to adopting proposed or final regs for this year may depend a little bit on, especially if they had a 1231 question, do they want to adopt what was in the proposed regs or in the final regs for, for the upcoming year? And that may drive how they, they approach adopting the final regs for this year. Yeah, and it may make, you know, lead to some situations where somebody had a gain in April of 2019, and if they adopt the final regulations, the final regulation says you have to invest the gain within 180 days, and now you're past that point. So. Maybe they wait till the end, but then you have to make sure you still have a net gain at the end of the year. So it'll be interesting. Right. And then uh, on top of that, we have a variety of taxpayers who may have technically have capital gain, but may not um, may not pay tax on that capital gain. And yeah. so for those taxpayers, what, what did the guidance tell us? Yeah. So this was something which I think was very unclear in the proposed regulations. And there were also you know a number of comment letters written. And basically, people were asking is, if I'm a non-US investor or if I'm a tax-exempt investor and I have capital gain, can I invest my capital gain and get the benefits of the QOZ program? And what the final regulations tell us is that for non-US investors, you, you, can, you have to have a capital gain, but it also has to be capital gain that's subject to US tax, so either something that's effectively connected income or if it's a FERPTA gain. And if you're a tax-exempt investor, Again, you have to have capital gain, but that capital gain also has to give rise to unrelated business taxable income. So it, for both investors, it otherwise has to be subject to U.S. tax for you to get the benefit. Got it. So foreign investors are eligible, but they're not eligible on gains not subject to U.S. tax. If it's subject to U.S. tax, which, again, from a policy perspective, certainly yeah. makes sense, And even though that wasn't clear before the, the final regs came yeah. out. And then one thing that's interesting now, for you know, at least for non-U.S. investors who have FERP to gain, so there's FERP to withholding. And if they invest this gain into a QOZ, technically they should be getting a deferral of that gain recognition. But the procedures for, you know, how that's going to work with FERPTA withholding requirements, that's still left to be ironed out. So I think we're expecting additional guidance on that. Right. So you could have something where there's no tax, there's no gain, but there may still be some withholding. And so withholding agents and partnerships will have to think about that, yep. even if the Opportunity Zone program is taken advantage of and, there, and there's no tax. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes complete sense. And so... 
touching a bit consolidated groups was another area that was in which there were a variety of questions that were outstanding. You had, um, again, you have the entity that has the gain. Gen the general rule is that's the that's the, the taxpayer that has the gain is the party that has to make the investment in the qualified opportunity fund, and it raised questions about. Well, if I have multiple entities in my consolidated group, can one recognize the gain and another make the investment? Mm -hmm. Maybe talk a little bit about that issue and where what we what so, we got in the final reg. Sure. So there's two prongs to this. So one was with respect to who recognizes the gain, and in the proposed regulations, if you had one member of a consolidated group that recognized the gain, uh, in order for that gain to be an eligible investment, that particular member had to invest. So even though consolidated groups are generally treated for many purposes of the tax law as a single taxpayer. There, they treated them on a separate basis. And what the final regulations do is they allow consolidated groups to elect to be treated as a single taxpayer for purposes of the QOF provisions. So if you have member one in a, Q, in a consolidated group that realizes gain and it wants to invest that, but it wants to have a different member invest, let's say they have a particular member in a consolidated group that's doing the investment for all of its members, then that member can invest and still get the benefits. Okay. The other provision uh, related to where you had a QOF that it, you know, that was part of a consolidated group. And under the proposed regs, a QOF could only be the parent in a consolidated group. It couldn't be a subsidiary. Mm -hmm. Now you can have that be a subsidiary member as well as a parent. Okay. So a little more flexibility there as well. No, that's actually, that, that, so that's helpful. And then partnerships are another area where not quite, it wasn't quite clear what the rules were, certainly when the statute came out, because the partnership's the one that recognizes the gain, it gets allocated to the partners all sorts of questions on how do you, and who ha, who gets to invest it, how do you satisfy the 180 day period when the partnership invests it, it gets allocated to the partner later. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about those rules and what the final regulations did to change them. Sure, so as Julianne mentioned, you have 180 days from when you realize your gain to invest that gain. And under the proposed regulations, when a partnership you know, recognized a gain, it could either invest the gain itself or it could allocate it to the partner who would then invest it the proposed regulation said that the partner would have to invest the gain within 180 days on when the gain was realized, or 180 days beginning on the last day of the partnership's taxable year. But what we were finding out in practice was, is a lot of times investors didn't know that the partnership had gains, and so they were actually calling their partnership and saying, hey, do you have any gains for this year? What should we be investing? And I think sort of as a practical consideration, when the K-1 started coming out and people were getting those gain information, which was into the next year, that's when people started saying, we sh that's when we're getting the information, that's when we should be allowed to invest. And the final regulations sort of accept you know, market conventions and realities and say, look, a lot of times you're not gonna have that information, so they say, we'll give you 180 days from the due date of the partnership return to invest as well. Got and that would be March 15th without extensions. Okay, so, so, so we got a lot of good guidance in the proposed regs that made it really helpful for partnerships and now even more helpful guidance in the final regs that give even more flexibility yep. for, for partnerships on Definitely. that front. No, that, that, that's very helpful. And so talking maybe a little bit about rollover transactions and just to set the stage. So effectively what we're referring to here with rollover transactions is imagine you have a qualified opportunity fund. It wants to acquire an asset partner uh, or person B owns that asset and the partnership buys the asset from person B. They now have capital gain and they take that capital gain and they invest that capital gain in the qualified opportunity fund so the Qualified Opportunity Fund effectively could pay cash to B. Qualified Opportunity Fund now has purchased the asset, which is one of the, uh, the requirements that might have to be done, or the Qualified Opportunity Zone business does that. 
that gain is now taken and contributed into the Qualified Opportunity Fund. So the cash ends up potentially back, or at least a portion of it, back where it started. And the, um, and the, the, the person has now contributed cash into a Qualified Opportunity Fund. They had gain. And they may be taking the position that they have a good, um, good income or a good Qualified Opportunity Zone asset from that perspective because they had the gain to support it. So with that little bit of background, just mm-hmm. to lay out the, the transaction, the final regulations touched on that type of transaction. And what did they say about that? And they're basically going to say they're, they're going to look at more sort of the substance. It's like more of a substance over form step transaction circular cash flow. So like if I have property that has built-in gain and you have a QOF and I sell you my property and then I say, oh, by the way, I'm going to, I recognize 10 million of gain. Can I invest that in your QOF because I like the property you have? Then basically the regulations say in substance, what I'm doing is I'm contributing the property to you. So you as the QOF are not buying the property for cash, which is one of the requirements for it to be a, for it to be good QOF qualified opportunity zone property. And then because I'm doing a contribution, I'm not recognizing a gain, so I don't have capital gain to invest. So they're sort of basically saying, we're going to look at more of the substance of the transaction and not allow you to sort of do a two-step where we say, we technically sold this recognized gain and we had a purchase. So yeah. And which that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, there, there's certainly, again, if you're trying to encourage the investment there, obviously there's a variety of ways they, they could have gone with that. But at, at the end, certainly not abusive from a policy perspective, right? Someone recognized the gain. That was sort of the purpose of the program. Um, but, but at the end of the day, there are really two main implications from that, right? So, so the first is that the investor may not have the eligible gain, which is really what we're talking about now. And a second, a second one that you mentioned, which may even be more important, is that now that asset isn't treated as having been acquired for cash, mm-hmm. and the qualified opportunity fund may have an asset that it thought was a qualifying asset, and it may not be. Yeah, and it's gonna, that's you know, more important because from an investor's perspective, if the investor doesn't have gain, it just impacts them. But if the fund doesn't have good you know, qualified opportunity zone property, then it's going to impact all the investors in the fund. Right. which may be a more serious issue. Right, no, ab- absolutely. It's one thing for someone to take a position for their own um, benefit or where they're involved, but, it, but it's another when um, you're sort of potentially affecting other people and how they're going to be impacted by it. Yep. So absolutely. Julian, maybe, you know, we, we're talking a lot about the things that are in the final regulations, things that did change. Maybe touch on, on one thing, maybe in the REIT space, that, that didn't change that people were, were asking for or looking to do. One comment that wasn't taken that um, is, is a bit surprising was in the context of a REIT as an investor in a qualified opportunity fund. So a REIT holds an eligible investment in a qualified opportunity fund, holds that investment for at least 10 years, steps up the, its basis in, um, when it disposes of it, and doesn't pay tax on the appreciation as a result. It disposes of its asset. It takes that, um, the cash received into account it doesn't have any gain. However, there isn't a correlating adjustment for its ENP calculations. When the REIT ultimately uh, distributes out that cash to its shareholders, the shareholders are going to be receiving a distribution. There'll be ENP to support that distribution. That distribution may be treated as a taxable dividend. That dividend is taxed at ordinary rates in the hands of the shareholder. Overall, in the whole, in the context of the opportunity zone regime, you'll have a shareholder recognizing a ordinary income dividend from an investment that it, within an opportunity zone, which seems contrary to the policy of the opportunity zone program. Right. So, so REITs could use potentially the opportunity zone program to defer gain 
But if they're taking their shareholders into account and looking at total tax, and again, it depends on who their shareholders are. They may be tax exempt. They could be non-US. I mean, there's all sorts of, of potential shareholders. But it's possible that their shareholders end up in a less advantageous position at the end of the day because it's ordinary income and not reduced than, than otherwise if they do distribute it out. So, so something for, for REITs to certainly focus on. Thank you for listening to this tax readiness podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.